Good morning, everybody. Good morning to everybody at home. My name is Mike. I'm a, another guy named Mike here on staff at the church. I am not one of the pastors. I am the director of outreach, and I have the great pleasure and honor of sharing the Word of God with you today. We're going to be wrapping up our series on the church, what church really means. And so we've been in Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 42 through 47, and that's what we will be doing today. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to take that out. We will have the verses on the screen, but it's always good to have the scriptures in front of you. There's Bibles around the room, on the tables, if you need one. And I kindly ask that you would stand once you turn to Acts 2. While you do that, I'll, I'll tell you, I... I got a new Bible. I've had a, a bit of a struggle up here using uh, my regular Bible because I'm getting older and with all the lights, it was hard to see the font. So if you know anything about Bible fonts, there's like regular font and then large print, giant print, and super giant print. And because I'm an extremist, I went with the super giant print. So this is like uh, billboard font. There's, three words on each page, uh, so hopefully it'll help me read it better. So let's dive in. Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Thank you. You may have a seat. Well, spring has sprung for sure, hence the rain yesterday that we had. And this is the time of year where perhaps you wake up in the morning, you hear, you hear the birds chirping, you look outside, you see the trees and the flowers in full bloom. Everything's very green. Many of our Saturdays are filled up with doing yard work. And there's one thing I'm always reminded of when I'm out cutting the lawn. The, the smell of freshly cut grass always reminds me of one thing, and that is baseball. And so it's also baseball season, and I'm part of a dying breed, a group of people who like to sit down and actually watch a, a baseball game. Used to be America's favorite pastime, I think football has supplanted baseball. I think it's safe to say that. But I grew up in upstate New York, so I am still a Yankees fan. And whenever you say that, it's usually accompanied by some measure of grumbling or murmuring because they're not well-liked by some. But it's, it's the team I grew up following. My mom still lives up there, and she's a diehard Yankees fan. And whenever they get 
bounce from the playoffs or, or don't make the postseason, she'll slip into a mild depression for a couple of weeks, but she comes out of it. But I have very fond memories of growing up watching the games with my stepdad. We would watch the games with uh, Phil Rizzuto and Bill White on the call, and it was just a great time. And my stepdad would tell me about the glory days of the Yankees, the time when he was coming up in the 50s and the 60s. And some of the players on the team back then, you, you know them even today because they're household names, names like Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra. Well, I want to introduce to you perhaps a player that you have not heard of before. And he was just surrounded by a bunch of superstars, so he, he's often forgotten about, but he played from 1955 to 1966. And he should be more well-known because he put up pretty good numbers. He was a seven-time All-Star. He played in seven World Series. In 1960, he was the MVP of the World Series. He won five Gold Glove Awards, and he retired at the not-so-ripe old age of 31. So he could have done a lot more, actually. But unlike the names Mantle, Maris, DiMaggio, and Berra, you probably have not heard of Bobby Richardson. Bobby Richardson uh, should be well, more well-known, in my opinion. Not so much for his prowess on the diamond, although he did have, uh, does have an impressive resume, but it's for the legacy that he left behind. See, being a born-again Christian, he and a, another player on the team, the shortstop, a fellow believer named Tony Kubek, they were known as the, the Milkshake Twins. Because the New York Yankees were, were legendary for their late nights of drinking, partying, carousing. Uh, Mickey Mantle was a self-confessed alcoholic. And so when those guys were out drinking, Tony Kubek and Bobby Richardson could be found drinking milkshakes and playing ping pong. Which sounds like a good evening to me. I, I enjoy both those activities. But even though Bobby Richardson and Mickey Mantle had different pursuits, they were still the best of friends. In fact, later, after their playing days, Bobby Richardson led the Mick to Jesus and then ultimately officiated his funeral. And as great as that story is, that's not why I bring him up. I bring him up because of what happened in Game 7 of the 1962 World Series. If you're a big baseball fan, you might remember this because this series ended in one of the most dramatic fashions possible. It's game seven, bottom of the ninth, the Yanks are up by one, and the San Francisco Giants have runners on second and third. And up to bat is a very young Willie McCovey, who is definitely an all-star. He might have been a Hall of Famer, I'm not sure. But he's up. He gets a hit, a double in the gap, Giants win. But he laces a line drive right to second base. Second baseman Bobby Richardson secures the ball for the win, and they go back to back in their championships. However, that's not why I tell you that story. Not, it's not that that I, that I want to bring up. I want to tell you about what happened just moments earlier. I said there was runners on second and third, and what the Yankees did is they switched out pitchers, 
And if you follow baseball at all, you, you'll know what happens when the, the new pitcher's warming up. The players in the field will usually gather together, like the second baseman might go over to the first baseman and they'll talk, maybe strategy or what they're going to do after the game, whatever. But that's not what Bobby Richardson did. He took advantage of this opportunity. He goes over to second base and he starts talking to the runner there for the San Francisco Giants. And he asks him if he knows who Jesus is. This is not game one of the series. This isn't a regular season game. It's not spring training. This is game seven of the World Series, a critical moment with runners in scoring position, something that the team has worked for all year long. And Bobby Richardson is thinking about introducing Jesus to someone. Very interesting. Now, the details of that conversation are unknown. We don't know how that transpired, but that runner was overheard after the game saying, even during game seven of the World Series, you people are still talking about Jesus. I thought that's a powerful testimony. And it reminds me of what we have here in Acts chapter 2. What have we been looking at over the last few weeks? This is a, a description of the early church. And what have we covered? Well, we've covered that the early church would gather together. They would gather together for teaching, preaching, and learning. They fellowshiped together. Wonders and signs were done amongst them. They would, they would come together. They would break bread with one another. They had all things in common. And they would pool the resources together such that if there was anyone who was in need, they would be able to meet that need. Sounds like a great group. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? But that's all the internal things about the early church. That's the inner life of the church. It speaks nothing of the external going out part of what makes up the early church. So, in other words, those marks that I just gave you don't give you the full picture of church life in the first century. We need the latter portion of verse 47 that I read. And it says this, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, the first century Christians weren't so preoccupied with learning together and fellowshipping together and eating and drinking together and praying together that they neglected their witness. They, they, they didn't forget about witnessing. And the reason I bring up the New York Yankees is the comparison I'm trying to draw here is I bet those teams from the 50s and 60s, I bet they enjoyed one another they would gather together. They had things in common. They're all ball players. If you've ever been part of a team, sports team or whatever, there's, there's a, a certain measure of camaraderie that exists. They, they would gather together to, to eat and drink, whether that was alcohol or milkshakes. But they got together, they cared for one another, and they enjoyed tremendous success together. A very tight-knit group similar to the early church. But within that group, there, was an, there were certain individuals like Bobby Richardson who were not so infatuated with the group. They weren't merely focused on the group you know, as to not invite others in. Now, 
This is where my analogy breaks down because he doesn't go to the, sec the guy on second base to recruit him to be part of the Yankees. Uh, so that's, that's where this kind of all falls apart. But he's thinking about outside of his own immediate team. He's thinking of a greater team, if you will, the church. And that's what we're gonna talk about today is outreach. That's the, that's the word for the day, outreach or reaching out. So what we've done here is we've zoomed in on the latter portion of verse 47 in Acts chapter 2. And what I think we need to do is uh, to start here is we need to zoom out a little bit. We got we to gotta pan backwards and kind of look at the surrounding verses. This week in, in preparation, I, I thought I would just read through the entire book of Acts to see how the early church engaged uh, with the culture of the day. And it worked out well. There's 28 chapters, seven days in a week. I read four chapters uh, a day just to kind of refamiliarize myself. But I was really taken with the first four chapters. And what we're going to ask here is what did the early church look like in terms of their engagements with nonbelievers? Let me provide for you a sampling. When I, when I think about that early church and what I read in the book of Acts, especially early on, one word comes to mind for me, boldness. They were bold, especially the apostle Peter. I mean, this guy's no longer the open mouth, insert foot, impetuous denier of Christ. No, he's a powerful pro proclaimer of Christ in these first few chapters, beginning right there in Acts 2. He comes out double-barreled, guns blazing. Let me show you. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. And I, I'll try to read them as, as Peter said them. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And Peter's not done. He keeps bringing the heat. Drop down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This fiery, dare I say, confrontational preaching continues on well into chapter 3. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And as we get into chapter 4, we begin to see what's driving this spirit-filled, powerful preaching. See, the early church, Peter and the crew, they, they've run into opposition. The, the rulers and the elders, the religious leaders of the day, they, they're not liking this. There, there was a healing mixed in there in, in chapter 3, I believe. And they're, they're coming against the preaching of the word the preaching of Jesus. And so in chapter 4, verse 13, we read these words. Now when they, that, that's the rulers and the elders, saw the boldness, 
there it is, the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Little inkling as to what's, what's prompting this sort of preaching. Drop down to verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And that brings me to my first point. When we talk about this whole thing about you know, standing up and, and speaking out for Christ, it is, it is simply our witness. It is our witness. So let me ask you, have you been with Jesus? Have you met him? Do you know him? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? The real Jesus I'm talking about, not the man in the frame, not, not, the, not the, you know, historical figure from which Christianity gets its name. No, I'm talking about the personal man from Nazareth who left the glory of heaven and came to this place and got dirty. And he hung with lowly sinners. And he identifies with sinful humanity, yet he himself remains unstained. Have you drawn near to him? Do you know this Jesus that I speak of? Do you know him intimately? Has he changed you? Do you see him changing you now? Do you know this Jesus, the one who forever lives to make intercession on your behalf? That Jesus. If you have, you are a witness to all that he is and all that he has done. Your witness. See, sometimes I think we, we tend to overcomplicate things. We have a tendency to do that, right? People will say, well, you know, I, I don't know how to talk to people about Jesus. And I would ask that person, I'd say, can you talk to people about your spouse? Can you talk to them about your parents, your kids, your best friend from high school? Of course you can, because you know them. You ask me to tell you about my wonderful wife, you better clear your schedule, because I got lots to say. I do. We, we've been together since 92. I know her well. In fact, I know her so well that she's, Lord willing, going to be here for the 11 a.m. service, sit way in the back, and she's going to hate every minute of this. She's kind of an introvert. You know, uh, she's going to be mortified, hates when I bring her up. But I'm going to tell her, honey, it's for the gospel. All right? This is an illustration. Take one for Jesus, okay? But I'm going to do this to her on Mother's Day. But I, but I know that because I know her, right? I, I, I've been with her. I know her. I am a witness, if you will. And it's the same with Jesus. What did he say in chapter 1, verse 8? This is Jesus speaking here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
Now, I know you didn't literally walk with Jesus back then in first century Palestine. I know that. Neither did I. It, he, he didn't wash our feet like he did Peter and, and John. So we, we don't have that experience. But if you have the experience of knowing that, that you are a wretched sinner, incapable of saving yourself, and you know that Jesus Christ is a perfect Savior, and someone came along and told you about him, you turned from sin and you put your trust in him, and he has saved you, you're a witness. You're a witness to who he is and what he has done. Now, you will either be a good witness or a bad witness. But he said, you will be a witness. So I, I think we got a handle on what it means to be a good witness. I, th I think we understand that. But what does it mean to be a bad witness? Well, we tend to think that that's somebody who, who lies. They, they distort the truth. They, they, they tell falsehoods. Or perhaps they have atrocious behavior and all sorts of character deficiencies. They're a bad witness. And, and that's certainly true. But I think there's some sort of bad witness that is equally bad, if not worse. And that is the witness who doesn't testify. I've confessed up here uh, before that I enjoy watching these shows like Dateline and 48 Hours with my aforementioned wonderful wife. Yeah, I'm, I'm really landing on thick today, getting brownie points with the wife. I... <laughs> Skeptics are like, man, he must have done something. <clears throat> She's great. What can I say? Uh, but we watch these shows together, you know, and I remember one recently. There's this guy, he, he's, he's in prison, and he's been in prison for decades, and he is an innocent man. We know this. He's innocent. And there's a, a woman who's a free woman who knows it. She was a witness to what really went down, and so therefore she knows he was falsely accused and therefore falsely convicted, and he's been in jail for two to three decades, and she has not come forward. She would not open her mouth and speak about what she had seen and heard. And they asked her, why? Because she ultimately did come forward. And the question, you know the question, why not? What took so long? Why? And, and her answers were, I didn't want to get involved. I was afraid. What she had to share was going to look bad on her. And so it was kind of self-preservation. And the longer the time went on, the harder it became to come forward, to, for her to come forward. So she decided to stay quiet. And, and as I was thinking about this man languishing away, this dude's dying in prison. You got the words that can spring him and set him free, you're not gonna say anything? I was, I was getting annoyed with this woman. But then it occurred to me, I think there's a parallel. I do, I think there's a parallel. Do we not know the truth? Do you not know the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done? We know the truth. We are witnesses. If we're in Christ, we're witnesses. And we have the words that can set the captives free the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we often remain quiet. 
We need to come forward and testify. But like her, we, we, we remain silent, myself included. And why? I don't want to get involved. You know, I'm afraid. I got fear. Uh, people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to look bad. I'm going to be one of those people. Some religious zealot, Jesus freak, Bible-thumping wingnut, whatever it is, with the concerns we have when we think about opening our mouth in the public sphere about Jesus. And the longer you wait, the harder it is. Is that not true? It is, I think. Outreach is simply our witness. Now, let me take a page out of the book of the Apostle Peter, who came very strong. I gave you evidence of it. Let me come equally strong. I'm going to say something that's strong. It's a question, but it's a rhetorical question that you can answer in the privacy of your own heart. And it's this. Is it possible that the reason you don't witness is because you have nothing to witness about? You have not met him. You don't know him. You haven't experienced the peace that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you know the one for whom you were created, that he has saved you. You just haven't had that experience yet. You're not a child of God. I'm just asking you. That, that's not a question I can answer for you. You have to answer that for yourself. The same Peter said, make your calling and election sure. Right? He says, examine yourself, test yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Lest, of course, you fail the test. So it's witnessing. We talk about what we know. Everyone in this room and everyone at home, we know stuff. You know stuff. Your trade, your hobby, your interests, you know about it. And you therefore talk about it. And I would say that we talk about that which we love. Don't we? And so if you never talk about Jesus, perhaps you don't love him nearly as much as you think you do. And I know that's coming strong, but I look at what Peter was saying, I'm like, that dude came hard. So I think, I, I, I think it's fitting sometimes. We need a hard word because it's in our, it's in our DNA to witness, to share. It's in our human nature. We do it all the time with other things. You see a great movie, what do you do? You tell your buddies, you tell your friends, your coworkers, man, I saw this great movie last night. You gotta see it. You go out to the restaurant. It's a great experience. You, you tell people, man, when you get time, go check that place out. It's awesome, you, you love it. You are in effect an evangelist for that restaurant. Unpaid. They didn't die for your sins. They just gave you a good meal. And look at you, chirping away about the restaurant. We do it. I do it. Imagine you're, you're in the car. You're, you're driving with your family. And, uh, you know, they're all on devices or whatever. You know, that's how it goes in, in, in my uh, family. And, but you're driving, and you, you look up, and you see a shooting star. Are you going to just be like, like a mime? No, you're going to be like, yo, fam, put the devices down. Did you see the star that just went by, that shooting star? You're going to tell them. Yet, we remain quiet about the one who made that star, and by his will, it shot across the sky. 
Consider social media. So every, I don't care what platform you use. I mean, almost everybody uses some form of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Every one of those has some sort of share feature, a share button. You can either share, repost, retweet. And why is that? You're going through your feed and you see something that's good. You don't share things that don't impact you, that you don't think are good. Why would you share that? You share something because you liked it and you, you love your friends and your family and the people on your list or whatever. You share it with them. You've experienced something good. You want them to experience that same good thing. Is it not the same with Jesus? Have you experienced Jesus? Is he good? Don't you want others to experience that? Again, this ain't complicated. So that's my first point. Outreach is simply our witness. Our witness. Second point is that outreach is God's work. And what I mean by that is the results. The results of our witness, the outcome of our faithful witness about who Jesus is and what he has done, that's God's work. That's the effectiveness in terms of a pers uh, person's salvation of whom, with whom we're sharing this message. That's God's territory. He does the work there. You don't save anybody. I don't save anybody. You can't put anybody in heaven. You can't put anybody in hell. That's just not, it's outside of our power. And notice it in that verse there, 47, that we looked at, it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was the Lord who added to their number. It doesn't say Peter with his whiz-banging preaching added to their number. It doesn't say John added to their number. The Lord added to their number. As my friend G-Rod says, that was God. That was him. It's his work. And, and Jesus tells Peter in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, I will build my church. I will do it. It's not your job, Peter. And so it's not our job either. That is not in our job description. And I think this is a kindness of God. I really do. I, I think this is an outworking of his kindness. That is a burden I wouldn't want. I don't think you want it either. You know, I got family and relatives and parents who are getting up there in age. I mean, nobody's promised tomorrow, but, you know, I, I'm concerned for them. And if I think I have to save them, I got to have just the right words. I got to have that, that perfect illustration. I got to be able to answer all their objections. I got I to be so loving that they'll, they can't help but be drawn to Christ. That is too much for us to bear. I couldn't live with that. So that's why I say this is a kindness of God. Imagine if it was up to us. What an abject disaster that would be. We'd be competing. How many people have you saved? Well, I saved hundreds. Well, I only saved a few. Like, no, it, it is the Lord. And what would people do if it was up to us? Some of the things that you see going on today, a watering down of the gospel, manipulative means to coerce people into a decision, you see it. You see this rhetoric. Give Jesus a try. Just, just give him a try. Like he's a used car. You know, take him out for a test drive. 
I mean, you know, he doesn't expect that much of you. It's not as though he asks for your whole life. I mean, the commitment level's real low. You don't have to really count the cost. He said nothing about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following after him daily. He didn't say anything about hating mother and father, otherwise you can't be his disciple. Nothing about denying ungodliness and worldly desires and living for him. None of that. Just give him a little something. Just a, a head nod. Just, just look his way. That, that, that's all it takes. And what we've done is we've lowered the bar so low, when they step over it, we're like, got one. We just, we just converted somebody into the kingdom. Well, congratulations, you just made a false convert. Because that's not the gospel proclamation, especially in terms of counting the cost that the scripture is big on. Jonah 2.9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. We are faithful witnesses and we entrust the outcome into God's hand, his hands, and he will act according to his will. There's an evangelist, I'm a big fan of Ray Comfort. If you know Ray Comfort, he's been witnessing to people for decades. I mean, this guy, evangelistic zeal just off the chart. And I remember he was telling the story, or somebody asked him, they said, Ray, uh, over these many years of you sharing the gospel with people, how many people have you led to the Lord? And he looked right at him and he said, all of them. <laughs> and now what he meant by that is not that everybody he talked to about Jesus all got saved, what he meant was, I bring them to the foot of the cross, and what happens after that? My job is done. I, I bring sinner to savior, and what happens between those two parties? It's out of my hands. See, back in the early days of the church, the church in Corinth, there was these unhealthy divisions that existed. You had people that say, well, I follow Paul, or, or I follow Apollos, and Paul himself sets them straight in 1 Corinthians 3. If you'd like to turn there, I'll give you a second, because this is important. I want you to see it. We do have the words on the screen. I said this is important like the rest of Scripture isn't. It's all important, right? But this is, this is critical to get us from point two to point three. So Paul writes this, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 5. He says this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You know what our job is? Like a, like a farmer who goes out into the field to sow some seed, we scatter the seed. The seed of the gospel, throw it out there. It's going to land all over the place. Good soil, bad soil on the road, birds will eat some of it. You don't worry about that. You just throw it. And, and you water. You do everything you can for that seed to flourish. Tend the soil, all of that. But whether or not that seed is effectual at producing a crop is not up to us. It is the Lord's work. And since we're right here in 1 Corinthians 3, I want to continue in this text here for my third and final point. So I said, number one, it's our witness. Number two, it is God's work in terms of the results. Number three, 
We are in this together. This is not an I thing or a me thing. It is a we thing. It's us. So let's revisit 1 Corinthians 3. I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. This time go through verse 10. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let, let each one take care of how he builds upon it. See, we live in such an individualistic society. I, I'm guilty of it. I, I'm more about the individual than I am the group often. I think it just comes with being an American. I don't know. But when we talk about this evangelistic enterprise that we're exploring here today, this is not an individual thing. We often think it's on me. It's on me. I got to do this. No, you're part of a, a team, if you will. That's why I think the, the Yankee thing is, is it's apt. Uh, we're a team. We don't usually think of that. We call it the church, but I don't know if you want, you could refer to it as a team. So we're all in this together. And I know that I'm coming strong and I'm reminded of what was said of the Pharisees in the Gospels. They, it says that they would tie up heavy burdens and place them upon people's backs, but they themselves wouldn't lift a finger to help them. I don't want to be guilty of that. That's what I'm saying. We're, we're in this together. I want to be a help here. Because what is this whole sermon series about? Let me bring it all together here as we conclude. What are we talking about for the last five weeks? We're talking about the church. What church really means. Because we tend to think that, well, the learning part, you know, that's a, that's a group thing. Right? That you got to have a teacher and you got to have a learner. The, the fellowshipping. Right? I mean, by definition, it's a group thing. You can't fellowship by yourself. You know, fellowship with me, myself, and I. It just doesn't work that way. You need others. Breaking of bread, typically done in a group, right? And we think when it comes to the witnessing, well, that, now that's on me. That, that, that's, that's my job. I got to go it alone. And just like those others, it's not true. We do it collectively. The text says, some plant, some water, some tend the soil, some pull out weeds. I know I'm expanding upon the, the metaphor, but I, but I think it's, it's fitting. You know, I think of the people who pull out the weeds as like the apologists. They, they seek to remove any impediment that would get in the way of that seed taking root. So we got planters, waterers, weeders, gardeners, those who till up the soil. It's a collective effort. You're not in this alone. You know, I'm not big on titles. You know, about the only title I like for myself is Mike or Dad. You know, but I'm the director of outreach here. It comes with various responsibilities, but one of them is to help us in this whole endeavor to be faithful witnesses. So I, I want to be a resource to you. Now, I don't have all the answers. Lord knows that, and so does everybody else. Okay, I don't have this all figured out. 
But I love it when somebody will call up or, or send me an email and they'll say, hey, you know, I've been trying to, to share Jesus with my brother. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a tough nut. I, I just, he, 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 he stymies me. He, this, these are his objections. This is what he says. I've, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what sort of approach to take. Do you have anything that can help? Any thoughts, any ideas? Maybe, I don't know, but we'll work through it together. Like, I love those calls. That's one of my favorite things to do as part of my job responsibilities. I drop everything else to deal with that. You know, and that's what we do with the E3 group on Saturday mornings. A bunch of people, 15, 16 people get together, and we talk about how do we carry out this great commission, the command, how do we do it? And, and I learn from them as much as they learn from me. And you are welcome to join that group. You, I'm not hard to find. You know where to find me. I'll tell you how to sign up. Instead of 16 people, I'd love 26 or 36. It's Saturday morning. We got the whole building. We could fill up this room here, you know? I, I would love for you to, to consider that. Because if I have anything to offer, either in that group or to that person who calls on the phone about witnessing, if I have anything to learn or anything to, to share that's of value, I probably got it from someone else. And, and a person who came to mind this week is uh, a former staff member here at the church. Some of you uh, old school living water folks will remember our former youth pastor, Brian Hennan. Uh, pastor Brian uh, was a youth guy for sure, but he, he was very evangelistic. And, and he just had the, the perfect temperament, just very personable, great personality, very friendly guy. And I remember we would go out to, the uh, first time we went out to lunch to a restaurant, I, I was still the janitor here at the time, and they would allow me to tag along with the, the pastors and the rest of the staff for these lunch outings. And I remember sitting next to him at the table when, when we were placing our orders, and he would say to the server, you know, um, can I get like a cheeseburger, fries, and a Coke? And as she's writing it down, he said to her, he said, and, uh, you know, when the meal comes, uh, we're going to pray for our food. Is there anything going on in your life right now that we could pray for? And I was like, I mean, like, I, I dropped the menu. I looked at him, like, all wide-eyed. Like, you don't even know her. And he gave me a look like, so? But the way he did it was so just cool and casual, very conversational. It wasn't weird. Like, don't be a weird Christian, okay? We, we got enough weird Christians, okay? Be cool, be conversational. And that's how he did it. And you know what she said? She goes, how dare you ask me such a personal question? Of course not, that's not what she said. Who's going to say that? You know, can I pray for you? Oh, I'm so offended. You know? No, she was like, oh, she was just, she's ruffled. He took her off her game. She's like, I'm taking orders. Prayer? Oh, um, she's like, that was so considerate of you, so thoughtful. And, you know, she'd say like her mom was sick or something like that. And I've seen amazing things happen. She'd bring the food, because he did this all the time. I've seen servers bring the food stay at the table, and pray with us. 
I mean, great conversations ensue. We get to know these people. It's great. All he was doing was reaching out in a very kind, considerate, compassionate way. And might I add, very intentional. He brought up prayer. She didn't. That's, that's, where, that's where I think we struggle. There's got to be some intentionality as you swing from natural things like food to supernatural things like prayer. That's the challenge. So you're probably thinking, Mike, uh, you know, that, that clearly impacted you. You're sharing it as an illustration so many years later. What's been your experience as you have done that? How, how many servers have you asked that to? You know what my answer is? Zero. Not a single one. You're probably thinking, well, that, that kind of undermines the whole illustration, Mike. Uh, but not really. Not really. And let me explain why. That's usually not how it works. You know, you see somebody do something, and you're like, oh, that's good. I'll do that exact same thing. Well, guess what? God has made us different. We're all different. There's, there's incremental change that occurs. See, what Pastor Brian did was help me to see servers as people who weren't there to merely serve me, right? You know, what do we expect from the server? Tend to our needs, take our orders, get them right, bring the food out, make sure it's hot, right? Keep our drinks filled, right? That, that's kind of what we're thinking about if we're solely focused on the natural, on the, the whole going out to eat business. But the reality is that those men and women who do that job, they are image bearers of God and they need Christ as much as you need Christ and I need Christ. And so what he did is he, he reoriented my thinking of going out to eat. He changed my objective. I mean, what is really our objective when we go out? We want to have good food with a good company, good atmosphere, good service and not have any dishes to do. Right? That, that, that's, that's really our main objective. That wasn't Pastor Brian's. He was on another mission. He wasn't there solely for that. And it showed by his care and concern for that server. And so that worked for Brian. That doesn't work for Mike. So here's what I would do. You know, server would come up, hi, my name's Sally. I'll be taking care of you tonight. I'll say, hi, Sally. How are you today? Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, whoa, Mike, slow down. Like, coming on a little strong there, don't you think? No, but this is a big step for me. You don't understand. See, up until then, the server would come up and, hi, uh, I'm Sally. I'll be taking care of you. And like a dope, I'd be like, oh, Okay. Not even, not, how are you? You know, uh, almost quitting time. How long's your shift been? How are things going? And who knows where the Lord will take the conversation from there. And then when, when I pay the bill, you know, I have little cards that say, thank you. And it says, thank you for serving us. There's a little gospel message in there. I'll accompany that with a living water card or my website card. And I'll just write a little note on there. Hey, you did a great job. You know, and then we're out the door. I'm kind of a hit-and-run evangelist. But it's something. It's something. You, know, you might say, well, what Pastor Brian did was better. 
I agree. I'm with you. Then do that, okay? Some of you, that'll work for you. You got the personality for it. You can talk to that wall over there. You just, that's, how, that's who you are. That's not how I am. Not yet. I'm reminded of, of what uh, D.L. Moody said. I love this quote. Uh, he kind of lived up to his name with the, this quote. He said, it is clear you don't like my way of doing evangelism. You raise some good points. Frankly, sometimes I do not like my way of doing evangelism. But I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> kind of crabby. <laughs> I think DL got up on the wrong side of the bed that day. But his point is, okay, what are you doing? And I would ask you the same. What are you doing? I told you what I'm doing. What are you doing? I'd like to know. Maybe I'll start doing that. Might be better than what I got. You know, I can learn from you as much as you can learn from me. But the point of all of this is do something. Do something. Do what works with your personality, who God made you. How many of us are doing nothing? Be honest. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said, Brethren, do something, do something, do something. While societies and unions make constitutions, let us win souls. I pray you be men of action, all of you, get to work. So, in conclusion, I don't know if this is connecting with anyone. I don't know if this is falling on deaf ears. Perhaps there's some in this room that are saying, you know, Mike, um, I don't think I'm going to be any more evangelistic now than I was prior to this sermon. You know, it's just, it's just not my thing. Well, I bet you're glad that Jesus didn't have that same attitude, that he didn't share that perspective. In eternity past, when God the Father uh, decides to send his son into this world to bear your sin, Jesus saying, yeah, I don't know. It's really not my thing. I mean, I got to leave the glory of heaven, come to earth, be born in a dirty manger, live in pretty much poverty, nowhere to lay my head. I'm going to be rejected by my people. I'm going to be beaten, spat upon, mocked and ridiculed, ultimately hung up on a cross to die. Sounds kind of painful. No, thank you. Let them perish. I bet you're glad that's not the heart of Jesus. It's not. What did he say? Father, not my will, but yours be done. That is the heart of Christ. He chose to do the will of the Father. Who are we to say no? If he's not about his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him, we, we got a lot of nerve being about our will over and against the will of the one who sent us. He said, go. Go, therefore. I'm still building my church. I'm still adding to it day by day those who are being saved. And the means that I've chosen to do it is you. I want to use you. What do you say, yes or no? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for accomplishing that which we could never do. We cannot suffer enough to pay for our own sins. Yet you chose to come to this place and be mistreated and rejected 
and just vilified and put up on that cross to die for my sins and for the sins of all the people who come to you in repentance and faith. And Lord, you've given us a job. It's, it's a command. There's no question about it. And Lord, yes, we all have fear. It's no excuse. We all have it. Help us to overcome that fear that we would let love for you and your commands and love for others and their, their eternal destination, let that love swallow the fear that we have so that we will be faithful, spirit-empowered, bold witnesses for who you are and what you've done. You've given us our marching orders. Help us to carry them out so that your house might be full. And we ask all these things in the risen name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to close out our service a little bit different today. We normally end with a song. We're going to end today with a video. It doesn't require any setup, but uh, I pray that uh, this ministers to you and perhaps even inspires you. So go ahead, Stu, please. remember this from the first season of The Way of the Master? We were on the Santa Monica Pier in California when I saw what looked to me like a gang. So I ran up to these guys for an interview, and then things got a little tense. Jesus said, you heard it that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her. We do a little talk. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I can show you in Matthew chapter 5. It says, you have heard it said by... Did I say that? I'll show you in my Bible. They'll be talking to me. Hold on. Okay. Um, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you... I was on Hollywood Boulevard with our Ambassadors Academy who were doing open-air preaching on the street when I saw an onlooker and I thought... That's the guy from the video that gave Kirk such a hard time all those years ago. But he looked different, and this guy was holding a Bible and listening to the preaching. I go, it's not very likely. But then he did something that absolutely convinced me it was the guy. He started biting the inside of his lip, just like the guy on the video. And I knew it was him. So I took a picture of Kirk and I said, five years ago, you were on Santa Monica Pier a bunch of gang members and this guy right here told you about Jesus Christ and he just looked at the picture and he said that was me I go to Bible study every day I go to church Thursday and Sundays and and I'm loving it and it's a good loving thing it saved my soul it saved my life and I'm, I'm different now and it feels good feels good. Every time I tell the Lord God, I, I mean Jesus Christ, to put a shield over me, wherever I'm at, to guide me from temptation and desire and from the evil one, he, he always guides me home in the right direction. You know what I'm telling I'm not going sideways no more or falling on my face no more. That's Life is beautiful. Five years ago, this guy was saying Jesus did not say that. And today, he was testifying of the things that Jesus had done in his life. It took some time, but God saved him. I had the honor of sowing the seed, someone else harvested, but it was God who caused the seed to grow. As the Bible says, he that sows is nothing, he that reaps is nothing, but it's God who gives the increase.
Praise God, right? That conversation was started by Kirk Cameron handing those gang members a piece of paper. It's all it was. A piece of paper started asking them some questions and look at what the Lord did. We want to give you that same opportunity. Inside your worship folder is uh, one of these things right here, this orange and blue Y thing. It has information about living water. I want to give you a chance, like Pastor Mike did last week. I'm piggybacking on his idea. You can apply what we just talked about today. At some point during this week, give this to somebody. Use it as a conversation starter. Give it to them and see what the Lord does. You don't have to give it to a gang member, although you could. Gangsters need the gospel. But do something with it. If nothing else, leave it somewhere. I leave these in the bathrooms all the time. This is what I do. I figure people are in there, they got time. Hey, give them something to read, right? So do something with it. If you don't like this, we have an outreach resources board downstairs in our library with a whole host of other things. I need a vehicle to help me in this whole endeavor. And I've pro I'm providing a number of them for you. Pick something that you like. Help, you know, it'll help you in your, in your witness. It will. Let's uh, dismiss with the, the final words that Jesus had for his disciples in Matthew 28, just before his ascension. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, this is wonderful, I am with you always to the end of the age. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Go out there and give them heaven. Take care.